Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We've been uh, looking the last few weeks at the Apostles' Creed, and this is an ancient creed. It's been used for nearly 2,000 years by the church. The earliest uh, kind of inklings, writings of the entire creed that we have is from about 390 A.D., but one of the church fathers, Irenaeus, he wrote a bunch of, um, a bunch of the lines, almost verbatim, in a, in a document, in a book that he wrote called Against Heresies. It was against Gnosticism. It was against all sorts of different things. And he wrote a lot of this creed down for us in the uh, late, I think it was late 100s, early 200s that he was writing. It's been around a long time. Uh, The Apostles' Creed, it's called the Apostles' Creed because the ancient legend is that the apostles sometime in Jerusalem following Jesus' resurrection and Pentecost, uh, they each contributed one of the lines to the Apostles' Creed. Um, that's most likely uh, an apocryphal, legendary story. Uh, probably didn't happen that way. Uh, but that's kind of one of the legends around it. And we're looking at, at the Apostles' Creed because this is one of the creed. This Actually, this is the creed that all Orthodox Christians, no matter what de- denomination, no matter what flavor they are, can agree on this one. And so we've been looking at this because uh, it is a beautiful creed. It, 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 it's, it's easy to memorize. Uh, it's got a certain uh, meter to it. It sounds nice when you, when you read it. In fact, uh, to demonstrate that, we're going to read it all together. Uh, so if you'd stand and we're going to recite the Apostles' Creed. Actually, we won't recite because that implies that you have it from memorized. We're going to read it together. Um, if you have it memorized, recite it. And uh, we're going to do this together. So in a good, strong voice, act like you believe it, right? Um, so it, once they're up on the screen, those words, here we go. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Well, please be seated. Um, it's a powerful statement, and most of the lines are almost written, they're almost lifted right out of Scripture, and today we're going to look at uh, the beginning of the discussion in the creed about Jesus Christ, the line, and Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, and I just want to quickly pick that apart, that line, point us to a couple of passages because I'm using the creed not to preach the creed, but to preach the scriptures. And by the way, if I ever get to where I'm not preaching the scriptures, if I'm not preaching Christ, you all need to find a new church. Um, that is what creeds help us to do, is they help us to see, are we within the right uh, corral? Uh, are we within the right playing field when it comes to right belief? 
That's the point of the creeds. Are we within the right playing field? Because within that playing field, those are all sorts of arguments. They happen in Sunday school when you start talking about eschatology, right? Uh, which is going on. Uh, if you want to stick around, uh, eschatology is the study of last things, which is really important for all of us because someday this all comes to an end and we all need to know what's going to happen next. Um, and then we can argue and fuss and fight about it. If you notice, the creed doesn't say much about eschatology. It does say that he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. And that's what it says. Uh, and so outside of that, we get fussy and argue and whatnot. But in the creed, it sticks to those core principles. So today we're going to start looking at Jesus. Now, one of the things that you can see in the creed right away is that it is Trinitarian in its formulation. That the creed is centered around, it is built upon, the structure is um, the Trinity. Now, it begins with God the Father, which it kind of actually even flows through the scriptures in the self-revelation of God. We start with God the Father, then we get to Jesus, and it parks there, and it spends a lot of time with Jesus. And we're going to spend a lot of time on Jesus the next couple weeks as well, and his work and what he's accomplished. The, the big 25-cent word for that is Christology, the study of Christ, the study of the work of Christ. And, and then it hits on the Holy Spirit, and then it gets to us, the church. Um, and that's the structure of the creed. And if you're not familiar with the word Trinity, uh, then you, ha- you're not, you haven't seen the Matrix uh, series, and, and maybe you didn't grow up in church world. A trinity, I'm not even going to try to explain it in detail today because honestly, I don't know how to explain it in detail. It is, it's, it is difficult to explain. In fact, many people have tried to explain it, and in the process of trying to help people understand it and to explain it, they've walked out into the weeds outside of the corral and gotten into heresy. They've gotten into false teaching. And so, uh, just in a nutshell, really quickly, the thumbnail sketch on the Trinity is that God exists as one uh, essence, one substance, but in three persons. God is one substance, but three persons. There's kind of four concepts that you need to know in order to understand the Trinity, or at least to, to start to unpack and to, to get a feel of the Trinity. The first is that they're all of one substance. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all the same substance. They're all God is that substance, right? And all of a sudden, we're starting to go, whoa, this is getting mushy and weird. But they are one substance, and he exists in three persons or three essence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And these three persons are all co-equal and co-eternal. So those are the four concepts that you kind of need to get your head around. Substance, essence, or persons, co-equal, and co-eternal. That means that nobody's in charge of the three. They're all in charge of the three. They're all equals in the three. That they're, they're all co-eternal. And you avoid certain heresies when you keep all that stuff, all those tensions, together. Because one of the heresies was adoptionism, where God adopted Jesus who was a really good guy back in the first century and kind of promoted him to the Godhead. 
And that's a heresy, adoptionism. In fact, that's what uh, Mormons teach, that Jesus was a really good guy and that he was adopted and became God through a work of God to make him God. And the Mormons often teach that we can be what Jesus is, that we can become what Jesus is through adoption, through living a good life and all these kind of things. And that's a heresy. Jesus pre-existed. He was co-equal with God, co-eternal, and then he incarnated on earth as a person. He was in a, what the 25 cent word is, hypostatic union, that he was fully God, 100%, and fully man, 100%. And don't ask me to explain that one either. But he was 100% man, 100% God from his conception, okay? He's the second person of the Trinity. So in a nutshell, that's, that's the Trinity. And you can see that that is at the core of the Apostles' Creed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Today, we're going to spend time on Jesus, Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, okay? Now, the first word, Jesus, where does this come from? Where does he get his name? In Luke chapter 1, verse 30 through 33, and this is a great passage. If you don't have your Bible, uh, I think we have some to steal, um, so you can grab a Bible if you don't already have one. Uh, but I encourage you, get your Bible out, open it to Luke chapter 1, um, and you're going to be thinking, wow, we're halfway to Christmas, and he read a Christmas passage. Um, so, and it, like yesterday, it's like halfway to Christmas. Did you, anybody know that? Some of you are like, oh, really? And others are like, yay, like Sherilyn. She's already started playing Christmas music at her house. So she never stops, yeah. Did I give you enough time? Luke chapter 1, verse 30. Um, The angel is talking to Mary, and he says, But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. His name is given to him by God the Father through an angel. He's told, the, Mary is told what his name will be. She had no options, right? She didn't get one of those baby books out. She didn't get online and try to figure out what would she name the kid. It was just angel told her, right? Uh, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. In fact, Luke chapter 1, 30 through 33, what I just read, is summarized in the one line in the Apostles' Creed, pretty much, right? That one line that we read earlier from the Apostles' Creed. And Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. All of those concepts are here in Luke chapter 1. Jesus is given to him. Now, uh, back in the day, lots of kids were named Jesus. It was actually Hebrew. It was uh, Yeshua, or we get our word Joshua from it, the name of the guy who led Israel and conquered the promised land, Joshua, Yeshua. And his name means Yahweh, our Savior. Or you might have heard Jehovah, our Savior. And that's what his name means. And he's come to save us. And he's God, Yahweh, who's come to save us, all right? Those are all important concepts to keep together. Jesus, his name tells us a ton about him. That's why the angel picked it. That's why she wasn't able to name name him just, you know, Steve, right? Because what does Steve mean? 
But Jesus is Yahweh, our Savior. Now, it's interesting. What's he going to save us from? (laughs) You ever met these folks who don't need saving? At least they think they don't need saving. There's a lot of people. This is actually a growing group in the world who think they don't need saving. In fact, you go around, you're trying to save people. People are like, what are you talking about? Because this kind of language, this kind of of verbiage is, is, is fading out of our vernacular. People aren't talking like this anymore. And Jesus, he came to save us from sin. Genesis 3, Genesis 6, uh, Genesis 11, all of the great crises that you see in the Old Testament, Jesus came to fix those things, to save us and to rescue and to put right the world. That's why Jesus came, and it's right there in his name. Now, the second one, Christ. Some of you think that's his last name. That's a really interesting last name, Christ. I've never met another Christ. You know, nobody else seems to have that last name. Uh, Dan Brown, his thing didn't work out where Mary Magdalene and Jesus had a baby. Have you read that book? It's a really weird book. Um, There's no other Christ. And the reason you haven't ran into other Christ is because it's not a last name. It's a title. It's a title. And so when you say Jesus Christ, you're not saying his last name. You are attributing a title to him. It's like if you were to call me, like Sam does on his phone, Reverend. Reverend Winecoop. So when he gets a call from me, it says Rev, you know, the Rev's calling. And he's the only person that calls me that. It's really kind of weird, which please don't get in the habit of calling me (laughs) Reverend, unless you decide to go full in and say the right Reverend, his holiness, you know, or something like that. (laughs) Right. I'm just trying to put a kibosh on the Reverend thing, because anyways, he's my kid and he's moving away. Um, (laughs) Reverend is a title. It's an earned title. It's not just given. Christ is a title. It's an earned title. It's a given title to Jesus. And it means the anointed one. That's what Christ means. Christ is actually the Greek for the Hebrew word Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. So Jesus Messiah is the same as Jesus Christ. Yeshua, Messiah, is the same as Jesus Christ. Jesus, the anointed one. Does that make sense? Now, in the Old Testament, there were three offices that required anointing. There was the, anybody know him? Prophet, the priest, and the king. The prophet, the priest, and the king were all anointed offices in the Old Testament. And when Jesus comes along, the Messiah, the concept of Messiah from the Old Testament is that this is the anointed one who is going to fulfill these three offices. And so the prophet, the prophet is one that spoke on behalf of God. He taught the people. He admonished the people. He he rebuked the people. Jesus is the prophet. Jesus speaks on behalf of God. Why? Because he's God. (laughs) When he speaks, he's speaking the words of God. And when he speaks admonishment or rebuke, he is speaking God to us. Does that make sense? That's his native tongue, the language of God. He also fulfills the role of priest. The office of priest is that of a religious authority. The high priest was the supreme religious authority in the land of Israel. 
in Jerusalem. And the priest would sacrifice for the people, and he'd also make intercession between God and the people. Well, Jesus obviously does this. Jesus is the priest, according to Hebrews. He's the great high priest. He is the supreme religious authority, and he has also offered the perfect acceptable sacrifice to God for our sins, to make the world right. And he also, we're we're told that he mediates between us and God. And so he's the priest. Third, king. The king is the supreme political and administrative authority of a land, right? I mean, what the king says goes. This one is probably the hardest for us. We understand prophet, we understand priest, but we're a bunch of rebel Americans, right? We threw off the royalty thing way back in 1700s. We didn't like that much. No taxation without representation. We had a big tea party over it. People got rowdy. Folks got shot. There was the Battle of Bunker Hill. Uh, Paul Revere and his midnight ride. I mean, it was, you know, ah, kings. Ah. And then Jesus comes along and he's a king. And we're like, don't I get a vote on this? Right? Because that's core to who we are as Americans, right? We want to vote on these things. In fact, a lot of people do vote on this. We'll look at this here in the coming weeks and even a little bit more today. But Jesus is the king. He governs us. He leads us. We are his subjects. We are his servants. That's who we are. All right. Christ. Jesus Christ. Now, the next one. God's only Son, this is interesting because this came up in our high school, Sunday school a few weeks back of, uh, of, aren't we all God's sons and daughters? How does this work that Jesus is God's only son? What does this mean? Well, John three sixteen, right? This is where this is clearly taught. It was also taught here in Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 33, that he will be the son of the most high, the mighty one. John three sixteen, for God so loved the world. All right. Awesome. And John 3.17 is? Yeah, just kidding. Um, <laughs> which is a really good verse. You need to, his son in the world to condemn the world, but to... Oh, man. You need to memorize that one, too. That's a good verse. John 3.16 and 17. Now, we learn there that Jesus is God's only begotten son. That he is the second person of the Trinity. He's the same substance as God the Father, but he is the, third, the second person, one of the three of the Trinity. And he incarnated here on earth. He was God in the flesh. And he came and he lived amongst us. And in that way, he is the unique, begotten, only Son of God. Now, we are sons and daughters of God, but we are that through adoption. Very different. Jesus is that by essence, being. We are that through adoption, by faith. Now, uh, Jesus is God's only son. Our Lord. Again, we're back to that whole king idea. We're back to that whole, I don't get a vote on this part. In the Greek word, the Greek word here uh, that was used, um, it was used in different passages where it talks about the owner of possessions. And, and so like uh, you read about the Lord of the vineyard, 
or you read about the, the Lord of the harvest, you read about these, these guys who owned things. And we actually learn that this is a trade of Christ. Uh, Titus chapter 2, 14. It, it tells us that Jesus has made us his own property. He purified for himself a people that are his very own. And it's interesting because this is picked up not only in the Apostles' Creed, but it's also in the Athanasius Creed. And in the, I uh, uh, can't remember, it's another confession, that Jesus has redeemed us not with silver or gold, but with his precious blood and has delivered us from the power of the powers. That because of his death on the cross, once we place our faith in Christ, we are his. We're his possession. We're his beloved possession. You got anything you own that you love? I mean, you really, really, you know, like my guitar is kind of in that vein, although I'm a little, I have kind of a love-hate relationship with my guitar right now because it's, it's, a, it's a very complicated piece of musical instrumenty thing, right? It's made of wood and it needs humidity. It, it needs good temperatures. And my office here at the church where I usually keep it, it, it's not humid enough and it's not often cool. Or It has this sweet spot. And when it's not in the sweet spot, my guitar sounds like it's been sounding lately. You've been noticing that? No? Well, I'm thankful that you haven't noticed, but I'm sitting there going, oh my gosh, I hate this thing. I want to buy a new one. Because then I'll ruin that one, right? <laughs> I mean, the problem is that it has this sweet spot it needs to be kept in. And it's frustrating when it's not kept there. And it's a possession that I love. It's possession that, you know, when you ask that question, if you had a fire, what would you grab and run out the house with, right? Those are the things you love. Well, you and I are like that to Jesus, we are that possession that he loves, he cherishes. So I know this is, we're, we're blasting through this because I want to get to kind of the meat and potatoes of what this looks like. If you remember, we've been walking through uh, a matrix that Matt Chandler, a pastor down in Texas, kind of created for us. And this ma- matrix of looking at the creed uh, through symmetry, clarity, community, and counsel. And This part of the creed helps us with all of these things. It helps us to have a a balanced view of a balanced understanding of who Christ is. So in the area of symmetry, many of us see Jesus as Savior. In fact, I would venture, I guess, a lot of you see Jesus as your Savior. That at some point you went to VBS and some little blue-haired lady scared the hell out of you, right? (laughs) And you confessed your sins and you repented and that's where you learned John 3.16. And you accepted Jesus as your Savior. But remember, right after it says Jesus, it says Christ. Right after it says only Son, it says Lord. You see, a lot of you, and I know this from being a pastor as long as I have, a lot of us go, Jesus, cool with that, man. I want to be saved. I want to have hell insurance. 
I want to be saved when I die. But it's always in the sweet by and by, right? It's not now. That's where the Lord part of the symmetry of this issue comes into play. See, a lot of us don't want a Lord. We got that part down pat for ourselves. We're good with being Lord of ourselves. We don't need some guy telling us how to live our lives. But this part of the creed tells us that's who Jesus is. He's Savior and Lord. In fact, there's raging theological debates. Can you actually be saved if he's not Lord? Think about it. If you're not a subject of him, why would he save you? If you're not following him, if you're not completely and utterly loyal to him, why would he save you? Why would he do that? Now, that's a big debate, and maybe adult Sunday school, they can talk about that at some point. I'm not going to get into that. But that's one thing that this creed corrects. The other one is some of you have the opposite problem. You see Jesus as Lord, as king, as tyrant, as cruel, as he always withhold things from me. I, this is why my life never works, because God has it out for me. And you don't understand that you are God's cherished, loved possession. That you don't see him as, as walking in the garden with you, as the old hymn says. And he walks with me, and he talks with me. And he tells me I'm his own. You focus so much on the king part and you've forgotten that he is your savior, your friend. Clarity. Clarity is the second part of the matrix that Chandler talks about. And here we see that every single person on planet Earth, every single religious system believes something about Jesus. The Muslims, they believe that Jesus is a prophet and not just any prophet. They believe he's one of the greatest of Muhammad, of, of, of Allah's prophets. Uh, they talk about him in the Quran. They believe that Jesus was a prophet. They believe he was a great man, a great prophet. Judaism, they see Jesus as a person who made false messianic claims that he really wasn't the Messiah, he really wasn't who he said he was, that he died, he never came back to life, that he died clear back then, and a bunch of Christians go crazy about the guy for some reason. And Judaism teaches he was a false Messiah. Hindus, many Hindus, of course, you know, there's about 10,000 gods in Hinduism. And by the way, if you don't know much about the other religions, I'd encourage you to, 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 to look into other religions, not to become an adherent of them, but to become aware of them because they're one of the main driving forces in the world today of why people see the world so different than you. You ever talk to a Democrat? <laughs> you, know, you know who you are here at our church. I talk to you. So, I, you know, I mean, if you've ever talked to a person who sees the world very differently from you, it's often very helpful instead of just going, man, they're an idiot, and I don't know what their problem is, right? And that's where most of us stop that conversation. And by the way, that's a conversation killer when you go, they're an idiot, I don't know what their problem is. If you learn, this is why they see the world the way they see it, now you can continue having conversation with them. Anyways, Hindus, 
There's about 10,000 gods in the Hindu religion. One of them is Vishnu. And many Hindus regard Jesus as an incarnation of the god, Hin- of god Vishnu. And the god Vishnu sometimes incarnates as a fish or a bullfrog or a deer. And in this time, he came back as Jesus. And I don't, I don't know exactly how it works because I'm not an adherent. But Vishnu, every once in a while, shows up to restore order to the world. And so many Hindus see Jesus as that. The Apostles' Creed doesn't say anything about incarnating as Vishnu. The Apostles' Creed teaches clarity on who Jesus is. Atheists or agnostics, which by the way, this is a fast growing group of people in our culture. Atheists and agnostics. They usually believe he was a good guy, a good teacher. See him as a good moral example to follow. Unbelievers often see him as irrelevant to their life. They kind of think of him like George Washington. Like, oh yeah, he existed. He did the cherry tree thing and can't tell lies. He's a good dude, but I have no clue how he relates to me in my life, right? Nominal Christians, those who are Christians in name only, they see Jesus as good. They see him as a good add-on to their life, but they don't see him as king. They don't see him as somebody who makes demands upon them. It's interesting. C.S. Lewis, who was the professor of medieval literature at Cambridge and Oxford, which is just another way of saying to all of us, he was way smarter than any of us, right? When he read the Bible as a professor of literature, and he set out on that task, he started reading the Bible to disprove it. Because he had these Christian friends who kept bugging him about it. And he's like, I'm just going to prove that this is a bunch of malarkey, right? He read it and he came to the conclusion that there are only three options with Jesus when you read Jesus' own claims about himself. When you read Jesus' claims about himself, there's only three options. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. C.S. Lewis a literary professor from Cambridge and Oxford. That was his conclusion. It's interesting how all the other world religions and in our culture doesn't see it that way. But when you sit down and you read Jesus' teachings about himself, and if you haven't ever done that, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Get into the scriptures. Encounter Jesus and his teaching for yourself, and you will have to come to the conclusion he's either a liar who died for a lie at great pain and cost to himself, which sounds more like something a lunatic would do, or he's the Lord. He is who he said he was. That's what C.S. Lewis said. And clarity, the Apostles' Creed, has that in there. It gives us the parameters for who Jesus says he is, for who Jesus reveals himself to be. Community. At the Lord's table, every week we practice communion. It comes from this idea of community. It's a place where we commune with God, but it's a place where we commune with one another. And Jesus Christ has created a community around himself. He is gathering disciples. He is gathering people who follow him, his followers, and he creates a missional community around him. 
He doesn't create a community of people who you know, show up and sing songs that they want to sing because they like those songs. He doesn't create a group of people who show up and go, I like that preacher. He tickles my ears. I think I'll go more. He creates a family. You ever been to a family reunion? Are there some of those folks that you could just think they can stay home this year? Are there some of those folks that think that of you? You see, family is not a chosen affiliation. I mean, it was in marriage, but when we were in our 20s, we didn't know what we were choosing, right? That wasn't all in the pamphlet. That was not in the brochure. We didn't get that. When we get older and we get kids, we start to try to explain that to them. And they're like, but I love him. I love her. And it's like, yeah, but they're family. I don't know. I mean, good luck with that. But when we make that choice, that's the only time we get to choose family is then. But after that, you're stuck with them, right? And you get to go do fun things with them or not so fun things with them. And that's your family. And the family of God is created by Jesus Christ, this community of the holy ones, a community of saints. We'll look at that in a few weeks. And this is the community that we're put into. And there's crazy uncles, and there's outrageous aunts, and there's obnoxious teenage kids, and there's messy babies, and we're all in this together. And Jesus creates this group of people who are willing to give their lives and their energy and their time and their money and their possessions for his kingdom, to advance his kingdom. That's what he creates, is a community of people that want to, I don't know, spend an hour and a half with high school girls in the summertime and talk about the book of Esther. But guess what? They probably won't talk about Esther an awful lot. What they'll talk about is cute little Billy Joel and how funny he is, and they want to hang out with him, right? I tried to say Joe, but it came out Joel. That was really weird. He wrote some interesting songs. I saw him in concert. Anyways, he creates this community of people. And one of the things that churches can drift with here is that we want prettier and prettier and prettier people in our church. What do I mean by that? We want people who clean up better and look better, follow Jesus better, and they're nicer people, and they're better people. And let me just say this real quick. May that never be true of our church. May we be a church that always has a bunch of baby Christians here. Because baby Christians, they don't know all the right answers. And they mess up. And a lot of times their mess ups are they're trying to love other people or they're trying to figure this out and they haven't cleaned up, but they know Jesus loves them and they love him and they can't pass the test when it comes to the doctrine and theology, but doggone it, they're excited about Christ. May we be a church that always has baby Christians and toddler Christians and God have mercy on us, teenage Christians, right? Because that's messy. And we don't want to be a church bunch of people that are pretty. You see, the older we get, the more curmudgeon-y we get. The more, that'll never work. Well, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. Well, we never used to do it that way. I mean, I'm starting to hear those words coming out of me. My kid's music, I want to just break it. I'm like, what is wrong with me? I mean... 
They actually scream nowadays. It's actually a genre. It's called screamo. And it's just screaming music. And my parents thought they were screaming when I was a kid. They weren't. They were singing. They're screaming now. It's totally different. Right? I can't wait to hear what my kids are saying to their kids when their kids are listening to whatever music gives them a headache. Right? Probably be back to like, you know, jazz or easy listening. They'll be like, oh my gosh, turn this off. Get somebody screaming. Anyways. We don't want to be a place that's just for us and no more. We are a community of people that we get the gospel done the same way it's always been done. Jesus put on flesh and moved into the neighborhood. You want to save people that hang out at the bar? You might need to hang out at the bar. You might need to hang out at the bar differently than the people that hang out at the bar do. If you want to reach people that nobody else is reaching, you got to go where those people are because they don't show up on Sunday mornings. And we're supposed to be a missional group of people that gather around the person of Christ and take this message to the world. We incarnate it. We love our neighbors. We serve our neighbors. Much like how he did us. All right, finally, counsel. Man, and I took longer than I meant, and I apologize. Stuff darts. I've got the microphone. <laughs> Jesus is Lord and Savior. And for the counsel part, all we're going to do to shorten this is what we plan to do. We're going to stand and we're going to sing. We're going to sing. We're going to read the verses from Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 20. Now, scholars believe this was the Christ hymn. That the early church either stood and recited this together, or they might have sang this together, these words. And what I want you to do is when we're going to read this, I'm going to turn my microphone off, but as we read this, I want you to say it like you mean it. And I want you to read it with some conviction. And as you read it, I want the Holy Spirit to strengthen us as we focus on the beauty of Jesus Christ as he's revealed to us in Colossians. And I want this to counsel all of us. I want this to be something that we walk out of here and go, ah, yeah, that was awesome, right? Like we've just, we took our vitamins for the day, right? We dropped and did push-ups and we're like, oh, I'm buffed and man, I'm ready to go, right? I want this to be something that counsels us. And as we go out in the world and people go, my life is horrible. And I don't know how to get things figured out and things are so tough. And we go, you need to read Colossians 1, 15 through 20. You need to take your vitamins. This is awesome. All right. So stand. We're going to read this together. Go ahead and get that on the screen.
And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Focus on the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. May it strengthen and encourage you. Amen.